can you turn with me to Romans chapter 8? Well, thank you, uh, Trev, the musicians. Absolutely wonderful time. I just want to remind you that the children are in with us this morning. So please, if you can keep your children with you, we would appreciate that. And uh, just give them something to, they're too small to listen. They can just give us something to draw with. But uh, I also think it's good that we allow our kids to grow up in an atmosphere where they are hearing the words. And I'm amazed uh, how much my boys can remember of what is preached. And uh, I was just chatting to Michael Eaton a couple of weeks ago, and he was telling us about his daughter, who is now a fine preacher. And she sat under his word, his ministry, for years and years and years. She just sat... drawing and the word was going in so don't think that your children are in any way being deprived just because they're not being entertained the word of god goes into their hearts and they they it's like a sponge and so i'm trusting even for the small ones this morning the word of god is going to go into their hearts eh? it's going to produce fruit romans chapter 8 i'm reading for the from the english standard version i'm excited to be preaching this morning and the title of my message simply is no condemnation no condemnation and uh, I said last week that uh, God has been challenging us personally in some areas of our lives that He's put His finger on of things that we've allowing His Spirit to transform us in. And one of the areas that I spoke about was the thing of going from a man-centered theology to a Christ-centered theology, a God-centered theology. And I can think of no better passage than Romans chapter 8 just to have a look at. And I really trust that you would be rooted in these things in a fresh way this morning. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And I pray that if you don't know that this morning, or if you do know that, when you leave this place this morning, it would be even deep, more deeply rooted in your heart than it already is. That will become absolute revelation to you that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And like I said, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I've chosen that on purpose. I want to encourage you. I can't force you to do this, but I want to encourage you that if you have a new international version, that you get yourself an English Standard Version of the Bible, that you spend some money and get. I want to tell you why. When we look at this portion, it will become a little bit more apparent. The NIV is a good translation that's very readable, but sometimes the meaning of what is meant is lost because of readability. And I want to say some of the older translations, and I'm really sounding old now, but some of the older translations like the English Standard Version, the Authorized Standard Version, are more accurate in terms of the, some of the words that they use. And I want to encourage you this morning to get an English Standard Version Bible. All right? They're freely available online. They're not expensive. Go and get yourself one. It says this, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, <laughs> that already should make you just leap in your heart and say, Thank you, God. There's no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Aren't you glad about that? For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of the sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's the other thing I hope that I'm going to be able to impart to you this morning is that we do not walk, work, 
walk by the flesh, but we walk, walk by the Spirit of God. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. To set your mind on the flesh is death. It's unhappiness. It is continual unsettledness. If your mind is set on the flesh, it's very strong language here from Paul. It is death to your life if your mind is set on the flesh. And we can have a look at what that means. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. How many of you want life and peace? We want life and peace. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Okay? Now, I hope I'm not shouting. I'm not angry. I'm very passionate this morning about this. All right? I'm not angry. I'm trying to make my, my face smile as much as possible while I'm saying this. All right? Life and peace. Life and peace for all of us by the Spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot, but those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It is impossible to please God in the flesh. Here's the good news. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him, but Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. Amen. Now why I said what I said about the NIV is simply this. The NIV, if you've got an NIV, it translates what I'm, the word that I'm using in the English Standard Version is flesh. And what is the, the NIV version? It says sinful nature. That's what it says, isn't it? And for me, that is confusing. It makes a whole lot of things very confused. How is it possible for a Christian to have a sinful nature? We have to ask those questions. If we come to Christ, and that's where I think the translation is weak. Because the word nature that Paul uses in the original Greek is only used one place in the New Testament. And that is in Romans chapter 1, where it talks about the sinful nature. It says this, that we sin against what is natural. That the, the sins, people, it, there's like a, a, a degradation of sin and we do what is natural and then there's a sin against our own bodies which is unnatural. That's the only time Paul uses that word. Every other time he uses the word flesh. Flesh, which simply means this body. Flesh, we sin in this body. That's why I was just thinking about this uh, the other day. Carnival is a very uh, good word because it's a celebration of the flesh. That's what happens at a carnival, the Nottingham Carnival. And why does everyone go dressed around half naked at the carnival? It's because it's a celebration of the carne, the flesh. If you go to an Italian restaurant and you have carne, what do you have? You have meat. That's all it means, the flesh, the body. And sometimes it refers to that which is still being even though the power of sin is death in our lives, we are still being sanctified. So that portion of us that still needs to be sanctified is also returned and is referred to as the flesh. The other thing I want to say is when we read the, the Bible, the ideas of the Bible are fixed once you understand what they are. But the language sometimes is a little bit fluid. So for example, if you read, uh, it says that Jesus 
came and was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. Does that mean that he took on sin? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It simply means he took on a physical body and he dwelt amongst us. And ordinary language, modern language is like that as well. So when we, when we read the New Testament, we have to make sure that we are, uh, the ideas, the central ideas, the themes of the te- New Testament are fixed in our hearts. And sometimes the language is, is uh, we need to approach the language with some understanding. Now what I'm saying is, for example, how many of you know that slang, wicked, actually means good? When you say something, if you, well, maybe I'm a bit out of date now, but a couple of years ago when you said wicked, it meant that's good. And now if you say something's really evil, you mean it's something, it's good. Now if something's really sick, it means it's actually quite pleasant. This is, this is how language works. So if you say those words meaning what the original meaning is, you're going to get really confused. So you have to know the context of where the, how, why the words are being spoken, and it's the same when we read the Bible. Okay? Are you with me still? So the word, <laughs> the word flesh generally just means body, and we sin in our body. I also wanted to say this, when we talk in this portion, when we talk about law, when it says the law of the sin of death, all it means is the power of sin. We're no longer under the power of sin, so every time you read that thing, law, substitute the word power. We're no longer under the power of sin. We're under the power of what brings life. Amen. Amen. So let's have a look at verse by verse. I'm going to try and do this. Uh, Verse 1 to 8. We have some incredible privileges as believers. And here, the first verse speaks of this incredible privilege. There's now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is Such good news, particularly after you've read chapter 7. Because what happens in chapter 7 of Romans? Paul is wrestling and saying, I do the things that I don't want to do, and what I do want to do, I don't do to me. Woe is me in this body of flesh. What is the answer? And he comes to this place saying, thank Jesus is the answer. And so after that chapter of wrestling with sin, Paul comes to this amazing declaration. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That should bring comfort to you. Instantly right now, it should just bring an absolute sense of relief to your heart and your life. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can I just unpack that a little? Because he he says this. He doesn't say there's no accusation for those in Christ Jesus. Because the Bible says the devil is accusing us night and day before the Father. How many of you have felt accusation in your life? I feel it all the time. Things I should have said wrestles within and from out, things that I shouldn't have said, could have preached this accusation. It doesn't come from Christ. It comes from the evil one. Paul does not say there's no accusation for those in Christ Jesus. Paul also says this. He he says, he does not say that there's nothing in us that does not deserve condemnation. There is. How many of you If you've been alive for more than one second, know that there's much in you that deserves condemnation. And we recognize that, and we grieve over that, but we are not, that is not the ruin of us because of the blood of Jesus. Thirdly, Paul does not say there's no tribulation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This health, wealth, and 
prosperity gospel that has been preached for years and years does not cut it in terms of the New Testament. Talk to the heroes of Hebrews chapter 11 who were pulled apart by horses, sawn in two, had their heads chopped off, crucified upside down, and tell them that there's no tribulation. There is great suffering in this life. Well, what does Jesus say? He says, do not fear because I have overcome the world. And greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. Amen. Paul does not say there's no tribulation, there's no hard times. There is. But greater is he that is in us than he who is in the world. There is a cross to bear. There are difficulties to face, to walk through. There are those things in abundance in our lives. But Jesus has overcome them all by the power of the cross. And that is our security. Paul does not say there is no discipline for those who are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say that. We are all, as sons, disciplined by God. Because we are sons. And how often don't, but we are not condemned with the world. We are disciplined, but we are not condemned. And how often don't, when we feel the hand of God upon our lives and God is disciplining us and he's putting things in our finger on our life and saying, I want that thing to change, don't we think, God, you've left me. You don't love me anymore. Suddenly we like our sonship has gone out the window. No, 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 he's treating you as a son. I had an issue with one of my children the other day where I disciplined him. And he said, you don't love me, Dad. If you love me, you wouldn't discipline me. And I had to say, no, no, it's exactly because I do love you that I don't want you to do this again and destroy your life. And therefore, I will discipline you because I love you. We've got to get past that sometimes with our own self-speak, isn't it? Because sometimes we think, no, it's like God doesn't love me. No, he loves you so much that he will discipline you as a son. Jesus is our city of refuge. Jesus is our protection. He is our advocate in heaven that gets all the charges against us thrown out of court. I love that image. Jesus is our great advocate in heaven, and all the charges brought against you, all the charges brought against you by your enemies, by the devil, Jesus throws them out of court. He's the heavenly lawyer. He's the advocate. He gets all the charges thrown out of court. Man, that's good news. What does Paul say? He says there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. God is pleased with you. God is pleased with you. He's pleased with you because of Christ. When he looks at you, he sees the blood of Christ over your life. It says, the Bible says, doesn't see your sin. It's removed as far as the east is from the west. And he is pleased with you. And just as he said over Jesus in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, he said, this is my son who I'm well pleased. And the dove came down upon him. When God looks at you, every single one of us, God says, you are my son, and I'm well pleased with you. Doesn't that bring life to you? You don't look like you don't believe me. It's true. This is the gospel. God is pleased with you as a father. He's not angry with you. He is pleased with you because of the blood of Jesus that he sees over your life. There is not, therefore no condemnation. What does verse 2 say? It says we, there's no condemnation so that we can no longer walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Came up with these two little phrases this week. This is the privilege of justification. The privilege of justification is that there's no condemnation. The privilege of sanctification is that we get to walk by the Spirit. 
That's the privilege of sanctification. How did Michael Eden put it a couple of months ago? He put it like this. He said, if you walk by the Spirit deliberately, you will fulfill the law by accident. Someone said to me this week, but if you preach this thing of once saved, always saved, it means that people can just go around and do whatever they want. Well, that's actually the gospel in a sense. But of course, if you believe that, then you really haven't understood the gospel because if Jesus is the overriding uh, desire of your heart and your love is absolutely consumed with Christ, you're not gonna do a whole lot of other stuff automatically simply because you love him. You're not going to murder. You're not going to rape. You're not going to steal someone else's wife because you love Jesus too much. You're not going to do that. Of course you wouldn't do that. You walk by the Spirit deliberately. You fulfill the law accidentally. That's what Eden said. Absolutely amen to that. So how does this come about, this amazing thing of this privilege of justification and this privilege of sanctification in our lives? How does it come about? Well, we, are, we, we read in verse 3. It says quite plainly, it says, the law could not do it. The law could not do it. The law could not justify us. The law could not sanctify us. The law could not free us from the guilt of sin, nor the power of sin. It could not bring us pardon. It could not promise grace for us. I don't know how else to say it. I'm using all these things to say the same thing. The law could not do it. The law was weak. And it made nothing perfect, nothing at all. The law attempted to bring these things about, but it couldn't do so at all. So the law couldn't do it. Paul establishes that in, a, in an amazing way. He also says this, it wasn't through any weakness of the law, because he says the law is perfect. So it couldn't be because the law was weak, but it's through the corruption of our flesh. Remember we talked about flesh bodies. The corruption of this body made it incapable for the law to be fulfilled in my life and for me to be justified or sanctified by it. It's like this. It's like the law, we were unable to keep the law, but the law has made no provisions for us. It's like a plaster that covers the wound so you can't see the wound, but it doesn't take the wound away. The wound is still there. Okay? And I want to read a portion out of Hebrews chapter 10 with you. Please go with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Because verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 10 says this amazing thing. It says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to remove our sin from us. Brilliant. This is the gospel. It's impossible for the blood of, sin, uh, the, the, the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And that's what they did in the temple. They would bring sacrifices, ritual sacrifices, to remove their sin. And they'd kill a calf or a bull or a goat or a bird, all these various sacrifices to try and atone for their sin. And look what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Again, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says, since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are con continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. It's amazing, isn't it? Verse three, but in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. 
For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said, Above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, but these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Amen. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Amen. You should be able to say amen to that. By a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. When there are forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Amen. That's why you don't have to go to the temple anymore with your bull and your goat and sacrifice and make atonement for your sin. The perfect sacrifice, Jesus has taken all of our sin upon, present, past, and future. He's paid it. The righteous requirements of the law have been perfectly fulfilled in his body, and you and I are set free once and for all. There's no condemnation for you that are in Christ Jesus. So the law doesn't do it. What does it? Well, he says it. In verse 2, the law or the power of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus does it. The law of the spirit, the power of the spirit does it. There's a new covenant of grace that's made with us in Christ. By that we receive pardon from our sins. We receive a new nature. We're no longer carnal. We are made free from the power of sin and death. That means two things. We made free from the power of sin, and we made free from the guilt of sin. Both of those things. We are under another master, if you like. The Bible uses all these things. It says master. It says we are under another husband. And that husband is the power of the Spirit that brings life. And that's what qualifies us now, and that's what qualifies us eternally. The power of the Spirit. And the foundation of all that, if you read in verse 3, is that God sent His Son. That's what it says in verse 3. When the law failed and did not do what it was supposed to do, God provided another means to do what the law could not do. In the same way, Joshua completed what Moses could not do. Moses was supposed to take the people into the promised land. He didn't. And who, else, who came then? Joshua came and took the people into the promised land. In the same way, Jesus does what the law could not do for us. That's what um, chapter 10 of Hebrews says so clearly. 
and sin was condemned. As soon as Jesus appeared, sin was condemned. God showed his hatred for sin by the sending of his son because he was going to deal with it and his commitment to dealing with it. And for us that are in Christ, the power of sin and the result of sin, which is death, is taken away. It's broken once and for all. In Christ, sin is condemned. And by the, the condemning of sin, death is also disarmed. The devil is defeated. The law, that the power of death that had in, uh, of, of sin in our lives that had is destroyed. 2 Corinthians says that Jesus, when Christ died, sin was condemned in, our, in Christ's body and Christ was made our sin. And so when he died, took all those things upon himself and dealt with it once and for all. The happy effect of that on your life and my life is that all the righteous requirements of the law are, f- are fulfilled in us both for justification and for sanctification, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled. And that is fulfilled by this wonderful word we use, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, perfect and complete righteousness upon you and I. And we looked at that last week in terms of that accounting term where we, we get someone else's account and what is our account is given to somebody else. Still with me? So how do we know then if we are in the flesh or if we are in the Spirit. Well, verse 5 simply says it very clearly. Simply by seeing, observing what your mind is set on. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. So if our minds are set on carnal things, and I want to just use this phrase, carnality, carnal thinking, Things like worldly profit, things like worldly honor, things like money, things like sex, things like power, things like the accumulation of more and more possessions, things like those, then we are really setting our minds on the things of the flesh. We are just behaving like carnal people. And other carnal people have set their minds on those things as well. And this is why, this is, this, to really preach this is hard. I tell you why, because all of us have a legitimate, uh, every husband in this house has a deliberate, uh, has a, a, a real sense in his heart that he wants to provide for his family, and he wants to provide a good future for his family. That's a legitimate thing. But if our mind is so consumed by that, and that's all that we think of, then actually we are behaving like carnal men instead of spiritual men. That's what I'm trying to say. The favor of God the welfare of our soul, the concern of eternity, those are the things that are of the Spirit. And those are the things that Paul encourages us and says, set your mind on those things. Not on the things of the flesh. The mind is the forge of your thoughts, if you like. Uh, Proverbs 23 verse 7 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. So I want to just challenge you as I challenged myself as I was preparing this. What do you think on with most pleasure? What most dwells in your heart when you are just alone with that cup of coffee? What is the, what is the altar of your heart? Who is, who is seated there? What, who's Lord, really, in the quiet place of your own heart? Are we really more worldly wise, or are we wise for our own soul? You know, in Matthew, uh, 20, Matthew 16, 23, 
There's that amazing story where, Paul, uh, where Peter has the revelation of Christ as the Messiah, and the very next moment, Jesus is rebuking him and says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, he calls, <laughs> calls Peter Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. You don't, you don't, he says, you don't have in your heart, in your mind, the things of God, but only the things of men. He says that over Peter's life. So what I'm trying to say to you is that it's hugely important for you and I that we dwell our minds, the seat of our heart, whatever you, however you want to describe it, that we dwell on the right things, that we think on the right things. What truth, what news, what comfort do you most dwell on? What is most agreeable to you? I had to say over the last couple of years, I had to just come before God this last week and say, Lord, most of my sleepless nights... Most of my anxiety was simply not trusting you, but trusting what I could see. That's just carnal thinking. It's unspiritual. Just thinking, observing, well, this is what I see. If I do this, if I say that, if I do, that's, we, we can't think like that's carnality. Jesus is encouraging us, Paul is encouraging us here to set our minds not on carnal things, but on spiritual things. And he says it so strongly. He says, um, he compares carnal-mindedness and spiritual-mindedness, and he says, the one will bring you misery, and the other one will bring you joy. Oh, well, I don't know how more strongly he can put it. Carnal-mindedness is certain death, verse 6 says. If we dwell on those things, it is death to us. It's spiritual death. It's a certain spiritual death now, and it leads to eternal death forevermore. It's death for our souls because it alienates us from God. A carnal soul is a dead soul. Carnal souls are miserable souls. How many of you sometimes have been miserable? I've been miserable regularly. I have. This is confession time. I've said regularly to Helen, I, I, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of people and their problems. And she encourages me. She says, no, come on. Why? Because I'm thinking carnally. I'm not seeing what Christ can do in people. I'm seeing with my eyes of what I can see. Faith is not, we don't live by faith when we see with our eyes, but what we cannot yet see, that is faith. These are simple things I know, but they are profound things. And Jesus uh, says through Paul here that carnal souls are miserable. You can never be happy when you're thinking in a fleshly way. Because it says, even more strongly, it says, your soul is at enmity. You're an enemy of God when you think in a fleshly way. That's how strongly Paul puts it. He says it's impossible to please God. In fact, you become his enemy when you think according to the flesh. I don't know about you, that, but that fills me with like, I don't want to be God's enemy. I want to be his friend. <laughs> I want to be on the winning side. It says it's the alienation of our souls from God, and it's also the opposition of our souls against God. Our souls... When we set our minds on carnal thinking, our souls rebel against God's authority. We rebel against his design for our life. We spit in his face. We oppose his interests in our life. And I, I want to just plead with you as a, a body of believers that we are so aware of that and that we humble ourselves so it doesn't happen. We humble ourselves under his mighty hand. 
And Paul says God's holiness and the un- unholiness of the carnal mind are as opposite as light is from darkness. That's how opposite they are. And so we have to trust God to break carnal thinking in our minds and expel it. And that can only come by God's grace. Can't come from the will of man. That's why verse 8 says, those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. In other words, those that are under the reigning power of sin cannot do the things that please God. And that only comes, that pleasing God only comes by grace through Christ as our mediator. It only becomes because of the blood of Jesus on our lives as we were seeing this morning. That's a powerful phrase, those controlled by the flesh or those controlled by the spirit. And that, that little sentence, there's two vastly different states there. To be controlled by the flesh is to, or to be controlled by the spirit. All of us have that battle raging inside of us. But to be controlled by the flesh is saying that you are, are overcome by the flesh and that is completely contrary to the spirit. It's like an alcoholic who's overcome by alcohol. He cannot control that in his life. He's completely overcome by, her, overcome by it. He's subdued by it. So the question is, the great question is, are we in the flesh or are we in the spirit? And how do we know it? Well, again, Paul gives a very simple answer. He says, simply by asking if the spirit of God dwells in you. It's not, this is not complicated. It's quite simple. The spirit dwelling in us is the best evidence of us being in the spirit. 1 John four sixteen says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God is in him. That's like a mutual thing. He dwells in those that are justified and sanctified, and he rules and resides, and he reigns there. And the great question that we need to ask every single one of us is who dwells in our heart, who rules there, who keeps house in our heart, what are we most consumed by and enamored by? Whose interests are most ascendant in our hearts? And I'm not asking for introversion here. I'm just asking for a reality that we look at our lives and say, God, I want to make sure that you are firmly placed in the altar of my heart, that you are on the throne for for us. And over the next couple of weeks, I'd like to look at tearing down some of the idols in our lives because I don't believe the kingdom can fully come in us unless some idols are torn down and they no longer have power and then we can see the kingdom of God fully come in us. That's a radical thing. It's a radical thing. To be in Christ, to be a Christian, it's a privilege and honor that many can pretend to have, but those that are His have His Spirit. And because they have His Spirit, they are meek and humble, peaceable, patient, as Christ was. Uh, John encourages us, says, walk as Jesus walked. Well, it's impossible to walk in His footsteps unless we have His Spirit unless we are being conformed to the image or likeness of Christ. The Holy Spirit is our sanctifier, our teacher, our comforter. And to have the Spirit of Christ is to have the Spirit of God in us. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you that this week, that you'd spend some time with God and and be honest with Him. And say, Lord, some of these things, perhaps as I've preached this morning, there are some things that you know inside. Yeah, actually, that's fleshly. That, that thing needs to be dealt with. God, come and deal with it by the power of the Spirit. We don't want to set our minds on those things that are carnal. We want to set our minds on those things that are of the Spirit so that we can see Him move in power. So in summary then, out of these last little eight verses, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We can all say amen to that, yeah? 
That's the privilege of justification, that there's no condemnation. The privilege of sanctification is that we get to walk by the Spirit. Eaton said it, walk by the Spirit deliberately, you'll fulfill the law accidentally. How does that come about? Well, the law couldn't do that. The law of the Spirit of Christ does it. The power of life in Christ Jesus does it. I want to leave you with those questions this morning. Are you carnally minded? Are you spiritually minded? Is God putting some, his finger on some things in your life that need to be dealt with? What is your mindset on? Who's really on the altar of your heart? And my encouragement to you out of Romans, uh, uh, Romans 8 is that God says over us, we are not controlled by the flesh. We are controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. A death blow has been dealt to that thing by the, what Jesus has done on the cross. And there might be some skirmishes still in your and my life, but we are not overcome. We are not consumed. The law of the Spirit of life is in us, working in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what our faith is in. That's what our trust is in and in no other thing. Amen? Let's pray together as we finish. Jesus, I thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, you, you challenged us a year ago already to say that we should learn to walk by the power of the Spirit. And Lord, we, we know we are on a marathon journey. We know that we are learning to do that. But God, I ask as a, as a community of believers that you would daily teach us how to walk by the Spirit. And Father, we want to do that in all areas of our lives, at, in the workplace, here in our meetings, as we husband our wives, as we parent our children, in every area of our lives, we want to be those that learn to walk by the power of your Spirit. Lord, why don't you teach us? We're asking you to teach us. Lord, we don't want to be consumed with carnal thinking. We don't want to think just like everybody else does. We want to think, Lord, in a spiritual way that pleases you. We want to be more concerned about the things of eternity in our souls than we do about these temporal, earthly things that we see right now. And Father, there are many legitimate things in our hearts. We want to provide for our families. We want to make sure that we are doing the best that we can to provide a future. But Lord, we don't want to have our minds just set on those things that they consume us all the time and we can be of no good to your kingdom whatsoever. And so Father, I pray that you do this work in our hearts by your Spirit. I want to thank you for your encouragement that I feel right now in this place. You are good to us, Jesus. You are good and kind in every way. I thank you, Lord, even for the hard times that we've gone through in the last couple of years economically and in many other ways. I thank you that in those times you teach us things that we could never learn while things are all just going on as normal. I thank you, Lord, for that. I thank you that you discipline us as sons because of your great love for us, for our eternal reward and our eternal future. We are so grateful for what you've done. We bless you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.